0: So we're looking at the book of uh, of Titus this morning, and Paul is going to be speaking to this guy Titus, and Titus is on the island of Crete. It's a, it's a Greek island there, and he is exhorting Titus to deal with some issues in the church there, and he spends the first kind of portion of the book speaking to the idea of Um, pastors and elders, what the qualifications for those are. He describes kind of what a solid church looks like. And he's giving these instructions to Titus so that Titus will deal with the issues that exist there in the church quickly. Uh, He notes in Titus 1 verses 12 and 13, Paul notes one of the Cretans, he's, he's quoting one of their own prophets, he said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So even their own people have said that, you know, they're lazy, they're evil, they're gluttons. Like, Paul's like, I'm not making this up. Like, even their own people say this, and it's true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So because of this behavior that they are exhibiting, Paul gives Titus instructions for the church in verses 1 through 10. So read with me uh, verse 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, So that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So Paul here, he's addressing the, the culture, the church that Titus is over, and he's really giving them uh, an address to every part of society that would exist there. If you notice, he talks to older men, older women, young women, younger men, children, and bond servants. He covers everybody. Nobody escapes some instruction from Paul. Now, he gives instruction for behavior uh, to all members of the family of God. And his instructions there, if you notice, they speak of consistency and faithfulness. If you look back at at some of the things he mentions there, he says the older men are to be sober-minded, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, steadfastness. Steadfastness speaks of that faithful nature. Uh, For young women, you know, they're to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive. These these are pattern behaviors that are to be developed. Um, And and he goes through with every kind of category there to speak to this consistency of behavior. But in our text that we're going to look at today, he goes on, To show that the the behavior is a byproduct of salvation. He goes on to show that one of the great purposes of salvation is to produce holiness and sanctification in the life of the believer. And so we're going to look at it in two questions this morning. The first question we're going to look at is, what has God done for us? And secondly, we're going to look at, what should we now do in response? And Paul communicates these questions uh, through the use of tenses He does it in terms of past, present, and future tense. And so we're going to look at those uh, together this morning. Let's read um, in verse 11. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, Upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works so paul he goes on to kind of create a sandwich here. You know, we've kind of talked about those in in the book of Mark, how Mark will often write with a sandwich there. He writes with uh, part one, uh, you know, there, and uh, the, the bread being the outer portion, and then he has the main point that's in the middle there. That kind of is the key to unlocking. Paul does a similar thing here, and so we're going to look at it um, in in that sense. The first thing that we see here is what God has done for us. This is the past. Paul creates this sandwich in verse 11 and 14. Look at verse 11. He says there that God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. He has redeemed his people by his grace. The term that he uses there um, where he talks about the grace of God, he uses that term to sum up really all of God's actions on our behalf. And, and specifically within that, he's also speaking to the coming, uh, the incarnation of Christ coming to this earth, living a perfect life on our behalf and, and going to the cross, being crucified, being, uh, you know, whipped and, and beaten there and, ra- uh, you know, dying for, for our sins and then being raised from the dead on the third day. That is really what he he is speaking of there when he talks about the grace of God that has appeared, uh, you know, bringing salvation for all people. And then in verse 14, he continues on and he elaborates what this grace looks like. In verse 14, he says, this grace gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What does the grace of God look like? It looks like... God giving Himself to redeem us. In in First Timothy, Paul puts it this way: First Timothy uh, two verse five and six. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Later in Galatians uh, three thirteen, he writes, "Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written." Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Paul here, he speaks of uh, these two terms of redemption and ransom. And, and he uses them in what he's trying to communicate here in, in verse 14. He says this, this grace of God gave himself to redeem us, to, to ransom us, um, as we saw there in First Timothy and, and Galatians. And when he's using those terms, he's using them to kind of reference back to uh, the trade in their day. Often what would happen would be that you would redeem or ransom a slave at the market. When there would be uh, slaves for sale and you were looking to uh, get, you know, for additional help, you would go and you would see the slaves at the market and you would purchase someone's contract for them to work for you. And people in those days were were often put into slavery as a result of trying to pay off debts which they could not pay. And so they would work off their debt uh, through this kind of voluntary slavery. Um, and so here, what Paul is saying is, Jesus has come along to us trying to pay off a debt that we could not pay, and he has ransomed us, he has redeemed us, he has seen us and said, you can come with me. I'm going to take you off of that market. You belong over here. But Jesus actually goes even beyond that because in the slave uh, market you could actually resell your slaves if you, you know, after a while you're like, "Okay, you worked off a little bit of that and now you need to I'm going to resell you back at market." But Jesus goes even further than that. God doesn't resell us. He he um redeems us and ransoms us. But he goes even further. Look at Galatians 4, uh, verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is talking about the coming of Christ, Christmas, the incarnation. This, uh, God sent forth his son, born under a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He, he's buying us, he's, he's calling us to himself. Not so that we could be his slaves, but it tells us that so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we are redeemed, we're ransomed, but we're not brought in as slaves that he's going to resell at another date. He clears our debts, he pays our debts for us, and makes us a part of his family. We're made, we're adopted into the family, we're made uh, his sons and daughters. Jesus not only redeems us from sin, but he adopts us into his family. And that's exactly what verse 14 means. He has redeemed us from sin. Look at verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness or sin and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He has redeemed us from sin, from lawlessness, but to a life of purity, to a family. It's the grace of God that we were removed from punishment and that we were instead given life and love and brought in to be a part of the family of God. And so that is what God has done for us. Those are kind of the uh, little portions there on the outside, the, the bread and the sandwich. And now we come to the inside, The what should we now do in response? Uh, this this is the present here. What should we now do in response? Paul gives us two things that we should do for God as a response to what he has done for us. This is not, um, it's not a way that we contribute to our salvation, but rather it's a way that we recognize what God has done for us, and we overflow this action, this character, out of the understanding of who we are. And so he tells us these two things that we should do. In verse 12, he tells us that we should live for him. Verse 12, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. So because God has appeared, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, that salvation in turn trains us, and then in verse 12, that we should live for him. And it tells us that we do it two ways. It tells us uh, in, in verse 12, that we do it by renouncing. It says it's training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions. And when it talks about renouncing there, it's to deny, to cast off, to reject, to get rid of those things. We are to renounce, to get rid of, to deny, to reject worldly passions, ungodliness. In addition, we are to live self-controlled, upright, in godly lives. Now, when Paul communicates that, it's brilliant how he does it because he's doing it in all the realms of society as well. Self-control has to do with a relation to yourself. It has to do with living with a self-mastery over yourself, that you are responsible, that you are able to live a life that um, that would rightly reflect the way that Christ would live. Additionally, he tells us that, they are, that we are to live upright lives. When it talks about living upright lives, that's relation to others, those around us, dealing with, with things justly and with integrity. That's how we're to live with the world. We're not to um, simply be only inward-focused, dealing with ourselves, but also... Were to deal with the world in an upright fashion, that they would see the way that we live, and it would, they would know that we are treating them justly, and with integrity. And then, lastly, there he tells them that they should live, and and that we should live godly lives. It's a relation to God. We should live uh, lives of devotion to God. There should be God glorifying. Uh, actions that exist within our lives, that we reject, we renounce ungodliness, we live in a godly manner, we reject worldly passions, and we live with self-control and with upright nature, with integrity, with justice. These are the ways that we should live for Christ as a result of what he has done. Now, only those who have been transformed by the gospel, those who have found their identity in Christ, will be able to live for him because he is the model for how we do that. Because if if you don't, if you haven't seen Christ do that, then you're like, I don't even know how to, to live an upright or godly life. I'm just looking out for me. But when we consider the gospel, when we consider what Christ has done, then we see that Christ came, he lived a life here, and he wasn't looking out for himself. He was looking out for others. He was looking out for us, to ransom us, to save us. The gospel transforms us in that way, and, and it, it becomes our model. When it talks there about, um, in verse 12, that the gospel, the grace of God appears, it brings salvation for all people, training us. That word that it uses there for training. In, in, some, of your, uh, in some of your translations, it might say it a little bit differently. Um, it might say teaching, but when it talks about training, there the original word that it that it uses there is um is a word that means to instruct um, by demonstration. The words that we use in, in our modern day, and or maybe you don't use them in the scholar, in the scholarly realm, they use them. Uh, but it's the the word pedagogue or pedagogy that means to uh, to teach by way of example. Um, for instance, you could have a uh, a pedagogical prayer. For instance, when we pray here on Sunday morning, we pray in a way where we're praying uh, and speaking to the Lord, but we are also communicating in a way that is a model for how we want to address God, how we want people to observe and see God um, Interacted with how we want to recognize who He is as our Savior, as our King, and, and we we kind of go through that through some of our prayers on Sunday. In the same way, here this is what Paul's telling us about this word: the gospel is not just a one and done thing for us, where we see it, it's cool, I'm saved, awesome. But it is a teacher; it's training us consistently in how we ought to interact with society, with friends, with family. It trains us how we are to deal with situations at work when we're clearly, you know, being sinned against or we're being overlooked for something that we deserve. It teaches us how to handle those things in life, and this is what the gospel is about. It, it the grace of God trains us and it, it allows us to know, uh, or to understand um, how to respond. When, we don't, when, when things don't seem to go how we think they should go. Because I doubt that if there was, a, you know, I mean, Jesus even confessed in the Garden of Gethsemane, like, if there's a better way than this way, that I have to come and die, let's do that other plan. He knew that it would be a hard way to come and to die. And as he's sweating those great drops of blood there in the Garden of Gethsemane, even he asked the Father if there's another way, Let's, let's do another way. But there was no other way. He allowed himself to be destroyed on our behalf. As Americans, it's totally, um, it's totally off-putting to hear these sorts of things because like, we're all about our rights. You know. It's like, we have rights. You can't do that to me. You know? But Jesus laid down everything for our sake, and that is the way in which we should live. We need to lay down our lives for others. We need to live godly, upright, self-controlled lives that would demonstrate the grace of God, the gospel. And we're brought into Jesus' family as a result of that gospel. Now, it's important that we live these lives rightly because when we're brought into Jesus' family, there's family rules, right? Right? You don't make up your own rules. If, you know, my kids, they have specific rules that they know. part of being an Escalante is, like, you have to live this way because it rightly represents our family. It rightly represents to the world how we are. It reflects back upon your mother and father, how they raise you, how they treat you. And so we are not just acting, you know, this way as, you know, trying to live these self-controlled upright and godly lives for the heck of it but because it reflects back on our father it shows people what he is like when they come to hear the gospel verbally out of your mouth and you have been you know putting them before you you've been making sure that uh, you know somebody at work has been succeeding above you and encouraging them then it clicks in their minds, as the Holy Spirit leads them, it begins to allow them to understand that is what God has done for me. And you're demonstrating that to me on a smaller level, in a much in- less intense way, but one that points you know, that person back to the goodness of God. And so we have to operate within the family rules. We're, we're called to, to live in a way that reflects who God is. Now, the second thing that we should do in response is that we should look for him. Look at verse 13. (coughs) In this present age, we should be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is dealing with the present. We should live for him, but we should also look for him in the future sense. We're looking in anticipation of his coming, of his return. <clears throat> <clears throat> we're not only to live for him, but we're to live for him in a way that is expecting his return. The thing that is... <clears throat> we didn't really get a chance to kind of talk about it too much this Christmas. But the thing that's awesome about the, the Christmas season... And, uh, you know, you've heard the term Advent season. And basically what what that's speaking of is that anticipation, the waiting up until the date where we're counting down the day. The kids have the Advent calendars and they, you know, they're pulling them out and getting the little chocolates or, you know, things like that. And they're counting down the days until Christmas. There's this anticipation of the coming of the King. The way that in which we treat Christmas... Even as, like, a real super pagan society where, like, you know, all of a sudden there's a, you know, totally secular, like, Christmas countdown with, like, shopping days and all of that that's, like, you know, keeps getting further and further into the year. All of a sudden it's, like, the day before Christmas sale, the, the week before Christmas, or, you know, the week before Thanksgiving sale, the week before. It just keeps getting further and further. It's, like, we're open all day on Thanksgiving now. Just they're thrashing all the holidays in order to count down to Christmas and start the sales, and they 're doing it out of a motivation of you know money trying to make more money and capitalize. <clears throat> but even within that, even though the um, the motives are misplaced, there's still a similar countdown until the day when all all the world celebrates in one way or another, that this is the day that we remember that Jesus came to the earth. There's an anticipation, there's a waiting there. And the Advent season, the Christmas season, this, this time of waiting and counting down, it, it's good to celebrate because it trains us to anticipate and wait for the return of the king. We've anticipated the coming of the king, and now again we wait for the return of the king. And this is what we're told to look for in verse 13. It says, In this present age, we should be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to be waiting. It's talking of an expectant eagerness there. It's speaking of this, um, you know, a readiness that you would have, a watchfulness as you're you're looking and, and scanning about. Some of the translations actually say looking, but I find that that's probably not the best word because we can look at various degrees. It's like, oh, did you look at that, or look over there, or you know, how well did you look in there, you know, for that thing you were missing, or you know, and there's various levels. It's like looking could be like a glare or a stare. It could be like a glance. It could be you know, like a, an inspection and study of. But everybody waits exactly the same. Everybody waits expectantly, whether you're waiting you know, to open up a, a present, whether you're waiting for, you know, an anniversary, whether you're waiting in line at the DMV. You were waiting with the expectation that that is going to come, and you're constantly watching your number, watching the screen. Call my number, call my number, call my number, call my number. There's, a, there's an expectation of observation that exists there. <clears throat> when we wait, it produces this urgency, whether it's like on a totally negative sense, like this is taking way too long because I want to get out of here or get to this place, or whether there's an excitement that's produced, we all wait with that expectancy, that urgency. In Mark 13, we're going to look at this not next week, but probably the week after, Jesus speaks in a parable and and communicates waiting for the return of the king, waiting for his return this way. In Mark 13, starting in verse 32, he says, but concerning... In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Lest he suddenly uh, come and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus is talking about his return. He's talking about his coming, his, his second advent, that he will come, the return of the king. He says, pay attention, stay awake, don't be caught asleep. The master of the house has told you, I will return. Stay awake. Pay attention. Observe. I've told the doorkeeper, keep an eye out. You don't know when I'm going to come. This is what he has told us to. And what we're waiting for is the blessed hope in verse 13. We're waiting for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the return of the king who will come and receive his people to him again. Hebrews 9 puts it this way. As just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It tells us in Hebrews that he will appear again, he will come again, this time not to deal with sin because he's already conquered our sin, but to save those, to to gather those who are eagerly waiting for him. It doesn't say that those who are asleep, but those who are waiting. There's that expectancy that we are looking for the return of the king. Our focus is to be upon his return. When you know that you're not going to be settling down in an area, you don't lay down roots. When you know that you're not going to be staying in one spot for very long, I'm like notorious for this. Me and my family, we're always like, we move into a place where we're like, oh, we're only going to be here for like probably like, you know, four to six months. So like, let's not do anything. Let's just keep it like as bare bones as possible. We've done this like our whole, like every single place we've lived in. You know, let's not, like, you know, get settled in here because, like, we're going to end up having to pack all this up in six months anyways. The first place we lived in, we lived in for, like, five years. The second place we lived in for, like, three years. It's, like, crazy, you know. We never do six months. It just doesn't happen. However, um, you know, by, by not setting down those roots in a place that you don't expect to stay, it allows you to remain detached. Here, specifically, in what Paul's talking about, it's really important that we remain focused that this is not a place that we're staying. When we're focused that the return of the king is coming and we will go with him to his kingdom, we will be with him It allows us to live lives that are self-controlled, glorifying to God, that are upright. It makes it easy to renounce worldliness and and ungodliness and these worldly passions because we're not going to invest in something that we're not going to get to be a part of. This is the same way that we must live. We must live with that expectancy of the, the future return of Christ. And so, this morning, we consider do we have the hope of, the, the, as it even speaks of, the blessed hope of the return of Christ? And I don't just mean do you believe that the Bible says that Jesus will return for his people, but do you expect it? Do you live in a way, does your life reflect the fact that Jesus will indeed return for his people? do we pray for the return of Christ do we do you know the early church would often pray for the return of Christ it's where where uh we get the the term maranatha that means come quickly come quickly lord jesus that is the the prayer that would go off i mean he like barely just left and they were already praying for his return you know and now we're just kind of sitting around i don't know what we're doing here but I doubt that we are hoping, we have that, that blessed hope, you know, that it talks about there, that we are expectantly desiring the return of Christ. I remember when I, was in, um, when I was in junior high and high school, there was like a couple, you know, I mean, I grew up with a Christian family, and I kind of had the benchmarks, and later realized how sinful and stupid it was to have benchmarks. But I was like, God, don't come back, because like, I need to graduate you know, junior high first. Let me graduate junior high. And then I graduate junior high. It's like, God, you can't come back yet because I have to graduate high school. You know, and then I have to like, I, I really want to, you know, I really want to get married. Don't come back until I get married. Then after I get married, then you can come back. And then it's like, oh, I want to have, have some kids first. Don't come back until, and then I realized, you know, I realized how dumb and sinful that was that I'm living in this way where I was putting my own desires above the return of Christ. It's often and easy to do that because I wanted to build my life upon worldly passions, upon, you know, laying down roots in the world. It's not to say that there's anything wrong with any of those things that I mentioned. (coughs) But Jesus' return was not the greatest priority. It wasn't something that I had hoped for above all those other things. And that is what he is telling us to do this morning. If we indeed believe that Christ will return, it will change how we live now. If we pray, if we anticipate his return, it will help us in how we ought to live now. Paul creates this in uh, this little text here in a Sandwich. He talks about what Christ has done for us, and how he will come for us. He has done something already on our behalf, and he will return to gather us to himself. The the past and the future. We need to live in the present in light of looking back to the past at what God has already done on our behalf at the cross and looking forward to the future at his return. When we do that, it will allow us to live godly, upright, self controlled lives in the present. It will allow us to glorify God with all of our being, because we are not trying to save ourselves, to to add on to his complete work of salvation, because we look back to what he's already done, and we look to his future return, that he will come, that he will he will come and gather us to himself. It allows us to recognize that this is not our home. It's just a temporary, you know, place that we're passing through. Ultimately, we will be with him. Now, keeping these perspectives, they remind us of how we ought to live now. And and when we do that, it reminds us, you know, as we're talking about being trained by the grace of God and the gospel and salvation... It reminds us that we need to live in light of that and be on mission with Jesus. And there's a lot of other ramifications that take place as a result of that. But ultimately, our, our hope is not placed in this world. And that's why we're the church. We're gathered together. We're to remind each other that, like, it's all good if stuff seems like it's falling apart here because it's not, it's not going to, like, stay together here. We're here to remind each other that this isn't our home, that we wait for the return of the King. We wait for him to come and gather him to us, that we might be with him and know him forever. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us promises in your word, that you have told us of your love for us through the demonstration of your work upon the cross, and that you have told us that you will return for us. And so we wait in expectancy. Lord, we pray that you would come, that you would return. Lord, we want to be with you. We want to know you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts, Lord, to wait in expectancy, to anticipate your arrival just as we counted down the days until Christmas, Lord. May we begin counting down, Lord, even though we don't know the the day or the time. Lord, may we know that the the day of your coming, the day of your return arrives closer and closer with every passing day. And so we wait for you. Turn our hearts, Lord, um, outward, Lord, to focus upon you and not upon laying down roots here, upon building on worldly passions. But we want to be passionate about you, the King. And so we want to wait for you. Lord, cause us to have that that yearning for you, Lord, for your return. We love you. Amen.